You can turn now in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 650 and 651. I'll be reading Jeremiah 23, 1 to 22. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but... As the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. 
For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, may we be those who stand in your counsel, who see and hear and understand your word. God, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear, to know, to understand, to live for you, to glorify you, to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're visiting or just joining us, uh, we are continuing our series that we're doing this summer on prophet, priest, and king, looking at Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king. We are currently in the prophet section. Uh, we have today and then two more sections on prophet, so we'll be looking at that quite a bit. Last week, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 18 and how there were many lying voices to whom the Lord would not let his people listen. There were the voices of fortune tellers, of mediums, of sorcerers, and all kinds of other people that were listed. Basically, kind of in our lingo today, we might say like wizards and witches and astrologists. Uh, those were the, the voices that people were being tempted to listen to. But in the midst of all of that, God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people of Israel, and they were told that it was to him that they should listen. Ultimately, we saw that that chapter and that promise in Deuteronomy 18 was pointing forward to Jesus, our true and final prophet, who reveals to us, as we saw in our catechism question, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. There was a reminder there in Deuteronomy 18 that false prophets were guilty before the Lord and that they deserved death and that God's people did not, they don't need to be afraid of what these false prophets say because they are speaking lies. I think today's passage is a great follow-up to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to be taking an in-depth look here at a very tense moment in the history of Israel. And we're going to see how these lying prophets were leading God's people astray. We're also going to see what God required from those who were called to lead his people. This passage helpfully mentions prophets, priests, and kings, a reminder to us that this is not just some idea that Calvin and the reformers cooked up 500 years ago, and it's not something that our confessions and catechisms just kind of pulled out of thin air. This, this idea of Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, these offices are taken very clearly out of scripture. Well, why is this important for us here to understand today as 21st century Christians? If you've been not living under a rock, uh, you would know that this has not been a very pretty year for leaders in the church, kind of broadly speaking. Uh, 
There's been huge scandals. Uh, there's been denominational battles that are raging right now, many of which can be boiled down to our question at hand. To whom shall we listen? To whom shall we listen? Will we listen to Jesus, our true and final prophet, as he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation? Or will we listen to the voices of the prophets of culture, to those who speak false hopes, and those who declare what is contrary to the will of God that is clearly revealed to us in Scripture? If you've been around here very long, you know that I'm not a doom and gloom preacher. The sky is not falling today any more than it was during Jeremiah's day, any more than it was in the early church's persecution under Nero or during the corruption at the time of the Reformation. That said, we do live in an age where sin and wickedness abound and where there is utter disregard for God and what he has commanded. This is nothing new. We should not be surprised at this. We should not be surprised that the world hates what we have to say, and that the world disregards the word of God clearly revealed in scripture. Our solution is not to be found in political reform, in legislative power, but in the unshakable and unbreakable kingdom of Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. We're given a helpful reminder of this in our passage here in Jeremiah. But before we dive into our text for this morning, we need to do a little history lesson. Some of you might be excited about this. Those who are not excited when they hear the words history lesson, please don't zone out, okay? This is really important. We need to understand a little bit about the Old Testament kings and Old Testament kingdoms and what's going on here. Uh, We will definitely be reviewing some of these things later on in our last section under king, but it's helpful to see how the, the connection between the kingship of Israel and then the prophet, the prophetic ministry in Israel, how those things are tied together. So kind of just brief 30,000-foot flyover view, right? Deuteronomy 17, God told Israel that they would have a king, that he would give them a king, but that they should not seek a king like the other nations, okay? In 1 Samuel 8, when Israel demands a king and God gives them the king Saul, right? The problem isn't that they wanted a king because God said in Deuteronomy 17 that they would have a king. The problem was what is that they demanded a king like all the other nations, which is what God told them exactly not to do in Deuteronomy 17. So 1 Samuel 8 is when things really kind of like the kingship starts, but it really starts to unravel from the beginning. Saul disobeys the Lord. He goes and offers a sacrifice when he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come as the priest and to offer the sacrifice. Saul stepped out of his role as king and tried to, to step into that priestly role when he was commanded not to do that. Uh, he, and the Lord rejected Saul because of that. Then the Lord calls David to be king. We have the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. We call that the Davidic covenant. Then things kind of start to unravel after that, right? David's son Solomon turns from the Lord. The kingdom is divided. We have the northern kingdom in Israel. So we have, the, we have 10 tribes in the north. And then we have two tribes in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah. In Israel, does anyone know how many good kings were there in Israel in the northern tribe? Zero, okay? Total train wreck in the north, all right? Just full of idolatry and wickedness. How about in Judah, in the southern kingdom? How many good kings? 
two, okay? Two good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. Out of, there were 19 kings in the north, all wicked, 20 kings in the south, only two who fully followed the Lord. There were two others who did like some good, but didn't fully follow the Lord. So two good kings in the south. Okay, Hezekiah and Josiah. Jeremiah begins his prophetic ministry under the reign of Josiah. He prophesied from the end of Josiah's reign until the time that Judah was exiled into Babylon. So these events are covered and these names are mentioned of, of these kings in places like 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and then here in Jeremiah and a little bit in Daniel. So if you, if you read through your Old Testament somewhat regularly, regularly, these are things that you'll, names and events that you'll see. And this can be really confusing, okay? Like I had to go back and look at all this stuff again because like my head was just spinning. And every time I come across this, I'm always like, now who are these guys again? And how did this all play out? But this is super important, okay? So I'll try to simplify it a little bit so we can see the significance. So these kings that are listed here in Jeremiah 22 from Josiah on kind of give us the context for what we're gonna see in 20, chapter 23. So Josiah, who's the last good king in Judah, he dies in battle, and then the people rush in and they make his son Jehoahaz king in his place. Well, Jehoahaz was wicked. He only reigned for three months. He was carried off, into, carried off to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho. Another son of Josiah named Jehoiakim was placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho. He had no regard for God and his word, and he fiercely opposed Jeremiah. Jehoiakim then died, and Jehoiakim, it's spelled C-H-I-N at the end, so Jehoiakim is K-I-M, Jehoiakim is C-H-I-N, kind of confusing, and that's, you see those names and you're just like, I have no idea what's going on, but it's confusing. Jehoiakim is also called Coniah, if you look back in chapter 22, that last kind of, um, indented section. It's in verse uh, 28. Is this man Coniah? That's Jehoiakim. So this is Jehoiakim's son, Josiah's grandson. So he only reigned for three months, and then he was carried off into Babylon in exile, where he was imprisoned for 37 years. You might, you might remember, right? Oh, sorry, excuse me. You might remember this. Uh, he's imprisoned for 37 years, and at the very end of his life, he's released, and he he's, eats with the king at his table. So after Jehoiakim is exiled, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he sets Zedekiah on the throne as a puppet king. So Zedekiah is on the throne. He actually really has no authority. Babylon is totally calling all the shots. So, so Zedekiah is the last king of Judah who's this puppet king who's really just under the control of Babylon. So remember that. Remember Zedekiah as the last puppet king of Judah. We'll come back to that. Okay, history lesson is over. For all you non-history geeks, you can start to pay attention again. Okay, well, what's the point here in, in reviewing all that? The point is that the people of God are in a very bad place right here. Right here in Jeremiah chapter 23, things are not good for the people of God. They are about to be exiled. Solomon's temple is about to be destroyed. And here is Jeremiah warning them about all that is about to take place. Look with me at the last verse of Jeremiah chapter 22. It says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, 
a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah. This is a death blow here to the people of Judah. Their hopes of a son of David sitting on the throne and ruling over their enemies is dashed. Right? We, don't, we can't even understand what this is like because we live in a place where every four or every eight years some new person comes into power and with it a whole bunch of new people. This isn't like, like North Korea or somewhere where like one family is in control and there's, just, there's no getting the power away from them. And all the hopes of the people are tied up in this family dynasty. That's what's going on here in Judah. All the hopes of the people are tied up in that a Davidic king will continue to reign and continues to sit on the throne and rule over God's people. But here their hopes are dashed. And then Jeremiah launches into this strong word of judgment in chapter 23. He begins, Woe! Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Here we're squarely confronted with the failures of the leaders of God's people, destroying and scattering the sheep of God's pasture. And when it says shepherds here, woe to the shepherds, it's referring to the kings of Israel. It's referring to those who he just talked about in chapter 22. Well, how do we know that? When David was anointed as king in 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, God told David, you shall be shepherd over my people Israel. David was being anointed as the king, and God said, you shall be shepherd over my people Israel. So that role of the king was to be a shepherd. Interestingly, this title is used of the Lord in Psalm 80. The psalmist says to the Lord, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. He calls the Lord the shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim. God is sitting on his throne as the shepherd of Israel. So this role of king and shepherd are are intertwined. God is the shepherd king. And David and his descendants were to lead God's people as the under-shepherd kings. However, the major thrust of Old Testament prophecy is calling them out for how they have failed at their task. In Ezekiel 34, that famous chapter about the shepherds of Israel, Ezekiel blasts the shepherds of Israel for feeding themselves and for neglecting the sheep. But even after the Lord's harsh rebuke through Ezekiel, there is a promise. We talked about this a little bit last week. Remember this. When you're reading through the Old Testament prophets, there's this continual cycle, judgment and restoration. Judgment and restoration. The judgment of God is always coming, but there's always the promise that he's going to restore his people. They're never left hopeless, right? Even in this scenario here at the end of chapter 22, when it seems hopeless, God is not leaving them without hope. There is always a promise of restoration. What's the promise of restoration in Ezekiel 4 after those harsh words to the shepherds? The Lord says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, if you just do a little, like, chronologically through the Bible and think about this, uh, there's something very significant here. The first thing, David has already been dead for 400 years when Ezekiel says this. 
or when God says this, God says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Well, what on earth is going on? David's been dead for 400 years. Clearly, they don't expect David to rise from the dead 400 years later and be the shepherd over the people of Israel. This is pointing forward very clearly to a future descendant of David who would faithfully shepherd the flock of God. Think about Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders in the temple in John 10. He said to them, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He said that to the religious leaders after he had just told them that they do not believe because they are not among his sheep. The point is that God cares for his sheep, so much so that he sent them a true and faithful shepherd, his very own son. The need for God's intervention is seen here in Jeremiah 23. After this strong indictment in verses 1 and 2 against those who have scattered God's flock, who have driven them away, he reminds them of how he will care for them himself and how he will set faithful shepherds over them. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Notice the Genesis language there. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So here's this promise that in spite of all that's gone on, in spite of not having a king on the throne anymore, in spite of being taken into exile, God is going to raise up shepherds who will faithfully shepherd his people. This sounds, again, like our Savior in John chapter 6, verse 39, when he said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Our Savior, he is our shepherd and our defender and our keeper. Brothers and sisters, why do we fret when the world is against us? Seriously. There are wolves in the world, and there are wolves that sneak into the flock in sheep's clothing, and we need to be aware of their presence. We need to be ready to fend them off, especially false shepherds of God's people. Praise God that he has raised up elders in our church, shepherds. Our call is to defend the flock, to speak the words of truth and of life to you, to be the mouthpiece of the Lord. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. But let's get back to our passage. Pay close attention to verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This language here for raise up, this is the same language that was used in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that we saw last week when God said, I will raise up a prophet from among your brothers like Moses and it is to him you shall listen. Here, he is going to raise up a righteous branch for David. Now notice that the word branch is capitalized. This is talking about a person. What will this branch do? 
He will first deal wisely, unlike the foolish and unfaithful kings, and he will execute justice and righteousness. Like who? Like the Lord. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 97, verse 2. Look at verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There's a promise here that the divided kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah that have been divided, that they will be reunited, and the righteous branch of David will reign over the reunited kingdoms. This is a future promise that is still waiting its ultimate fulfillment. And look at the last line there, that he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, remember how I told you to remember Zedekiah's name? Zedekiah, the puppet king, right, who was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, who had no authority, who um, was the last king in Judah. He actually, as, as Jerusalem was being overthrown, Zedekiah tried to escape the city, but he was captured His sons were brought before him. So again, no hope of any future kings, right? All of his sons were brought before him. They were slaughtered in front of him. And then his eyes were gouged out and he died in prison. This is a picture of total desolation and hopelessness for the people of God. The king is in bondage to foreign powers and his sons are dead. It's all over. There's a beautiful irony here and an incredible play on words. The king God promises to raise up will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Do you know what Zedekiah's name means? Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness. And the ayah at the end is the word, is the part of the name that's used. And Jeremiah, Isaiah, all that I-A-H means the Lord. Okay. So Zedekiah's name means the Lord is righteous, or my righteous Lord. Do you see the irony here? Zedekiah, whose name, very name means the Lord is righteous, or my righteous Lord, is not a righteous guy, right? He's not walking with the Lord. He's in exile, he, and then he eventually dies. All the hopes that are, that are put in him are, are nothing, He's not the one to be followed. He is not the example of the righteousness of God. So when Jeremiah says here that the Lord will raise up someone and his name will be called, the Lord is our righteousness, which is a total slap in the face to the kingship of Israel and how they're failing and how they're not walking with the Lord. So in the midst of the tragedy here of an exiled people with no king on the throne, God speaks a better word of hope in verses 7 and 8. This is interesting because as central as God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt was, he tells his people here that when they return to dwell in the land in future days, that it will be actually a greater reminder of God's deliverance of his people. So there was a, for the people of Israel, there was a constant looking back to the Exodus, looking back to God's deliverance out of Egypt. But he's saying here to look forward to the day when you will be brought back into the land, when this king will reign as a righteous branch over both tribes reunited in the land. 
Now, again, if your head is kind of spinning from all, this, all these details and all these connections, that's okay. What's the main takeaway for us here? We don't need to remember all the details about all these kings of Judah and what they did, but we do need to be able to read our Old Testaments and to see how they point us to Jesus. The emphasis on the kings here is to show us that, for the most part, as the kings went, so went the prophets and the priests, and therefore the people of God. Failed leadership had huge ramifications for God's people. But it wasn't just the kings who failed. The prophets and the priests failed as well. Verse 9 until the end of the chapter, we're we're not going to look at verses 23 to 40, but you can go and read that on your own. But from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, it deals with the failures of the prophets and the priests, but most specifically with the prophets, as the ESV heading points out there, lying prophets. So in our first section, we saw that the woe, the, the word of judgment, was to the shepherd, shepherd kings. Now we're going to see this woe is declared to the, the prophets and priests. Jeremiah describes how completely distraught he is in verses 9 and 10 due to the evil and the wickedness in the land. And then in verse 11, the Lord speaks about the ungodliness and the evil of the prophets and the priests. Notice the phrase there in verse 11, declares the Lord at the end of that. He says, the prophets and priests are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. This phrase, declares the Lord, along with the phrase, thus says the Lord, it occurs 20 times in this chapter. God is just speaking over and over, speaking authoritatively, just hammering these truths over and over. And I think this is repeated so much because it's a reminder to these false prophets here that God is speaking through Jeremiah. When Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, or thus says the Lord, he is speaking authoritatively for the Lord. He's confronting the evil and the ungodly ways of the prophets, priests, and kings in Israel. Well, in an age, that, the age that we live in where it's cool to rebel against authority, and when phrases like, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong, when those things are commonplace, we need to be reminded all the more that the Lord has spoken and that he has declared to us what is true. As Christians, we have a responsibility, first, to listen to the voice of the Lord speaking through his word. As we read our Bibles, as we hear God's word taught and preached, we are to listen and to do what he tells us to do. When any of us stands up here to preach, the only authority that we have is what is already written. I can't stand here and say, thus says the Lord, you should only buy Apple products, or you should go to bed every night at 10 p.m. The Bible doesn't address those things directly. And since there are no clear directions, I cannot say, thus says the Lord, fill in the blank with some of my own opinions. So that means that you don't listen to me if I start saying crazy things that aren't in Scripture. My word does not carry any, what I say does not carry any authority. It's the word of God that has authority. And you also shouldn't listen to any voices of any so-called Christian leaders who are telling you things that are contrary to scripture. 
As Christians, we have a responsibility then, secondly, to listen with care and discernment to those who are claiming to speak on behalf of the Lord. There is a whole lot of craziness out there. There's a whole lot of people claiming to be modern-day prophets who are just wolves in sheep's clothing. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. We're going to have this in every generation, right? The Lord addressed it very clearly in Jeremiah's day. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. He starts off here, do not listen. This is the word Shema. It's the word that's used very frequently in the Old Testament to listen or to hear. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's called the Shema, the prayer that Jewish people still recite today. Deuteronomy 18.15, we saw that when God will raise up a prophet, and it is to him that you shall listen, same word, okay, Shema. So he's saying here, do not listen to the words of the false prophets. Why? They are filling you with vain hopes. This word here, vain, is the same word that's used throughout Ecclesiastes. It's the word, the Hebrew word hevel, means breath or vapor, vanity. Um, chasing after the wind. Don't listen to these false prophets who are just blowing smoke, right? Who are getting you to chase after the wind and who are just breathing out hot air. And then he talks about what another problem is the source of their words. These visions come from their own minds. They're not coming from the mouth of the Lord. So do not listen to them. They're just cooking up their own ideas. This is not coming from the Lord. Then in verse 17, check out their message the message and the posture of their recipients. And let this be a warning to all of us. The posture. They say continually to those